Hi, I'm Kate Bailey. I'm a coach, an author, and a sober mama. And this is Love Sober, the podcast for the sober and sober curious. Right, so welcome back to Love Sober, the podcast and sober and sober curious. And today I'm delighted to be speaking to Janet Gourand. And you can probably tell by her surname that she is married to a French man. She's a Brit who now lives in South Africa. So welcome, Janet. Lovely Thank you. To, lovely to speak to you again. And so Janet is the founder of Tribe Sober. She's a sober woman. She founded Tribe Sober, which is a community which helps people to change their relationship with alcohol. So a really big warm welcome, Janet. Lovely to speak to you, as I said. Thank you. Thank you. What what started all this off? What led you here? Yeah, my story. Exactly. <laughs> well, because we've run nearly 100 workshops, I was thinking the other day, I've told this story about 100 times. <laughs> so uh, what I do to make it some concise is I split it into three wake-up calls. And I had my first wake-up call at the tender age of 25. At that period in my life, I was living in London, sharing a flat with some other people about my age, all women. And we all had good jobs. You know, I was working at the BBC at the time. And we just, you know, all worked hard and, and played hard as well. And we'd always have wine in the flat and we'd have a few glasses at, and in the evening, but nothing drastic. But now and again, we'd have people around and it would, you know, turn into a bit of a party. And one night this this was happening and I was drinking as enthusiastically as ever. And the next thing I knew, I woke up in hospital and, uh, you know, I felt terrible. I didn't know where I was, what was going on. And it transpired that about midnight, I announced to my flatmates that I was going to bed. And I went into the bathroom to have my bath because that was just a habit. You know, I'd always have a bath before I went to bed. But I locked the door and got in the bath. And then one of my flatmates came to bed like 20 minutes later and she just knocked on the door to say good night and there was no answer you know so she started worrying a bit she called somebody else and they were both banging on the door absolutely no sound so then they did panic and they called 999 <laughs> and the fire brigade came and the medics came they had to knock the door down i was under the water you know i was pretty much unconscious so if it hadn't been for her i would have drowned so you'd think, wouldn't you, that that would be a massive wake-up call. And to give credit to the hospital, they said, um, you know, well, you were obviously <laughs> well over the limit with alcohol last night. Would you like to talk to somebody? And I said, no, no, I'm absolutely fine. You know, it's just a few glasses of wine. And it became a kind of legend, you know, a story. Mm. And people would say, oh, did you hear about Janet and her bath? What an idiot. <laughs> and never worried about it, never thought about it again. And then, you know, life carried on. I got married at 30 to another drinker. I think I met him in a bar. <laughs> and, you know, we had that kind of marriage. We, I remember going to uh, Waitrose on a Saturday and I'd get, you know, about 12 bottles of wine and always a bottle of Jack Daniels because when we got home from work, shot of Jack Daniels, wine with dinner, absolutely normal. 
And at weekends, uh, you know, we'd have people around, people like us, you know, other drinkers. And I remember we, we'd be at it till three o'clock in the morning. There'd be bottles everywhere. And, you know, we just thought we were living the life and, and we were having fun. You know, they were, when I look back, it were happy times. I had my son when I was 30 and I managed to stop for nine months. But, you know, it was hard. I was definitely white knuckling it. And I was so relieved when we could you know, wet the baby's head with some champagne. But anyway, back to the booze. Um, mm. Then, of course, it was the mommy juice, wasn't it? You know, I had to drink wine in order to parent. It was the essential parenting age. So um, that was my 30s. And then in my 40s, everything changed because that's when I met my French man. <laughs> so uh, I fell in love with him, got divorced, and excuse me, I've had a cold. <laughs> so buried the Frenchman and his attitude towards alcohol was very different to us Brits. You know, they they're a little bit more sophisticated, the French. They they tend to, you know, drink more with food and for the enjoyment and to for the wine, for the taste. And he couldn't quite understand why I always had to put away a bottle of wine every night, whether we were doing something, not doing something. And, you know, he he started dropping hints that I should call it a bit. And even on our honeymoon, we went to Barbados. We got married in Barbados, which was lovely. And we're having our honeymoon there. And we were at a beach bar once, you know, where you sit up uh, at the bar. And I was drinking rum punches. And the way that he tells this story is he just turned around to say something to me. And I was lying on the sand, you know, I'd literally slid off my bar stool and I was just lying there. And he was mortified, you know, if, if it had been my first husband, he would have thought it was hilarious, but this one didn't. So it caused a lot of tension in the marriage. And, you know, he said, you've, you've got to do something about your drinking, you know, it's so unhealthy. And then I, I I looked up, I started Googling, you know, how many units was a safe limit? Safe, we know nothing safe now, but in those days it said 14 a week. So I used to try and drink within those limits and I had a little notebook and I'd write it all down. And I'd usually manage for about two weeks and then the wheels would come off and then I'd drink till I blacked out and then we'd have a huge row. And it was just round and round. And every time I failed, I would feel so bad about myself. You know, my self-esteem was on the floor. So not a happy time. And then in my 50s, I had another wake-up call, which was breast cancer. And we now know the links between alcohol and breast cancer. The evidence is there. But at the time, I had no idea. This was in 2006. So, you know, I had a year of chemo and radiation and I had a mastectomy. It was all quite serious. But, you know, thankfully I pulled through that. But I remember saying to my oncologist, um, so do I have to change my kind of eating habits? And is it still okay to drink wine? I asked nervously. And he said, oh, my dear, you know, you've come through a difficult time and now you need to go away and enjoy your life. And there's nothing wrong with the odd glass of wine. <laughs> so, of course, that was to me a carte blanche to go away and re resume my bad habits. And then my final wake up call didn't happen until the age of 63. <laughs> they talk about slow learners. You know, that was me. 
age of 63, I was, um, you know, living here in South Africa. We went away with a group of friends uh, and rented a beautiful house for the weekend on the West Coast here. You know, it was right on the beach. And they were quite boozy friends, apart from my poor, long-suffering husband. And it was the kind of uh, weekend where you start on the bubbly at at breakfast and it just carries on. And I remember waking up on the Sunday morning feeling absolutely dreadful. But, you know, the British stiff upper lip prevented me from confessing to any form of hangover. So I said at breakfast time, uh, oh, why don't we walk to the next village? Because I've heard there's an amazing house there that we can rent next time we came this way. And everyone went a bit quiet and looked at me. And then someone piped up and said, uh, Janet, we did that walk yesterday and you were with us and you were walking okay, you were talking okay, you didn't seem particularly drunk. And much to my kind of horror, I couldn't remember anything from that previous day for I'd lost about eight hours of time when I was functioning, you know, and they call that, you know, a walking, talking blackout. And it's because my brain was so soaked in alcohol that it couldn't make memories. It's not that I'd forgotten stuff, but it couldn't make memories. And when I discovered that, it really frightened me. On the next, on the Monday morning, I woke up and I said to my husband, "That's it. I'm done. I'm not drinking again." And to be fair to him, he didn't say, "Oh, I've heard that before." But he said, "You've never said that before. You've always said I'm going to cut down." So that had finally made me realize that moderation wasn't going to work. You know, it had to be out of my life for me to stand a chance. So that's when my journey to recovery started. Wowzers, there's quite and I, you know, three quite, yeah, distinct kind of wake up calls, right? And it's clear as yeah. day, like you said, when when we're looking back at it, but at the time, it's it's not it's not so clear because of the normative yeah. drinking culture and people going, don't worry about it. And yeah. I mean that first one, the bath, mm. you know, I think back now and I, I kind of almost shiver because yeah. I've I've had a beautiful life, you know, I've been very blessed in spite of the drinking and I could have missed all that. I could have dry, died that night. And oh, I've got a, a friend in London whose 21-year-old daughter died in her bath, you know, from a drug overdose and it's so sad. Yeah, it's just tragic and it is that, isn't it? It's that the hazardous and harmful, you know, we talk about that kind of the trajectory and the 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 sort of uh, spectrum of addiction and and how normalised the hazard and hazardous and harmful portion of the addictive spectrum is. It's it's normalised. It's called just called drinking in the UK. It's not called harmful drinking or the alcohol use disorder spectrum. It's just called drinking, and it's just what you're yeah. doing, right? So yeah. it it you know what happened next then? So tell us about the oh. next part where you became you know your road to recovery, as you put it. Okay, well, here in South Africa, no idea what to do. Uh, there were no sobriety groups, so I trotted along to AA. You know, that's that's what you did, wasn't it? So found all these people smoking outside. And I remember I wanted to say to them, that stuff kills you as well, you know, but I didn't. So I went inside and, you know, it was quite a big group, lots of guys, uh, kind of older guys looking quite down and out, you know, and I just sat very quietly and listened. 
And they made me say I was an alcoholic, which really annoyed me because uh, I hate that word. But anyway, they they like to label you there. And then I just listened to some of the shares. And they were so extreme. You know, I'm not knocking AA and some groups are probably wonderful. And I know they've helped millions of people. But that group, you know, wasn't for me because I actually left thinking, well, I'm not that bad, <laughs> which was so it was counterproductive. And I tried a few more groups, but I couldn't find the right group. But I was determined, you know, I was really white knuckling it. <laughs> so um, I carried it, I looked on the net and I found Club Soda in uh, in London. I think they're based in London still. Yeah. And I don't even know if they still do it. But at that time, they did one day workshops and I was due for a, a trip home. So I trotted along to this workshop and I remember it was in Carnaby Street somewhere and it was a baking hot day, which is very unusual for London. But outside there was a, a courtyard and it was full of pubs and people drinking and they got louder and louder as the day went through. But we were all sitting there, you know, half of us hung over. But it it was all kind of women and it was run by a nurse who was very nice, I think an ex-nurse. And she she mainly focused on all the health issues, you know, which frightened me to death because I had no idea until I, I went there. And But the thing about it, more than the content, what worked for me is there were other women like me, you know, they had nice families, good jobs, and they were drinking a bottle of wine a night and they knew it wasn't sustainable. So I felt like I'd found my people. Mm. So we all swapped numbers and we had a little WhatsApp group and we supported each other. And, you know, I came back. And the other thing I was doing was I was blogging. I've always loved writing. So I had a blog called My World Without Wine. <laughs> it's a bit sad. And I, I used to kind of document my my journey but I was um, I was very much relying on willpower still because I hadn't known that there was another way. And the light bulb moment for me came when I read This Naked Mind, you know, Annie Grace's book, her, her piece about limiting beliefs, et cetera. I thought, oh, that makes so much sense, you know, and I longed to see alcohol in a way that I didn't want it, which, of course, is where I am now, you know, eight years later. So I realized that there was a, another way. And when I was about five or six months sober, uh, and uh, about the time that I read that book, I was feeling rather depressed. You, I don't know if that happened to you, but yeah, when I was about five or six months uh, sober, I got rather depressed. And I think this happens if you've relied on alcohol for decades to make you feel good. You know, your kind of neurotransmitters get a bit screwed up and you you know your natural dopamine is all over the place and it hasn't really come back to how it should be yet so I remember feeling in quite a dark place and thinking oh you know life's so boring and I missed my I was missing my drinking buddies <laughs> and I thought because they'd all abandoned me because predictably I thought what am I going to do is this the rest of my life because you know I was quite old obviously but I thought you know, there was still plenty of life left in me. So I was bored and I was depressed. And then I, I suddenly got an eye. Well, I read The Naked Mind, which was definitely a light bulb moment. And then I had the idea that I would create a workshop because my uh, corporate career was in human resources, training and development, coaching. So I thought, hmm, I wonder if I can create a one-day workshop, a little bit like um, Club Sodas, 
But I thought I won't emphasize so much on health. You know, we'll also emphasize on habit change and this, you know, Annie Grace mind shift piece because that is so powerful. So I, you know, created a workshop completely in my comfort zone because I created hundreds of workshops in in my corporate job. So I um, put it on Quicket, which is like a ticket thing here. Um, sold 15 tickets within about an hour of posting it. And I thought, wow. So I had a hotel, you know, here in Cape Town booked and ran it and it went really well. So I just started running those regularly. And obviously that helped me so much on my journey. It was probably a little bit early in my journey to do something like that. But I was very honest, you know, with the people that I was seven, eight months sober and that helped me so much because um, not only every time I went through all this stuff, it kind of affirmed it all and helped it. There's nothing like teaching to make you learn stuff, is there? And that, that was great. And also the connection, because although I wasn't quite at that mind shift where you don't even want alcohol anymore, by creating a, a community um together we figured it out you know we had some fantastic conversations so so that was an absolute game changer for me you know setting up tribe sober and it's been you know triggering my dopamine uh, ever since <laughs> well you i have to say you created a great bit of accountability there too as well right <laughs> i know, I know. <laughs> i'm out i'm really out <laughs> yeah yeah because so, i was having such fun and the other thing that was happening is um because it's such a heavy drinking society here yeah um I was such a novelty. I was getting approached by TV stations, radio stations, the press. I did loads of interviews. So there was no way I could start drinking again. That's brilliant. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, so let's dig into this piece about you. How old were you when you stopped drinking? 63. So you were 63. So you were retired by that point. Yes, I retired at uh, we actually came here on holiday at the age of 50. And uh, I used to work at Christie's, you know, the auction house. And we came here and we we just both fell in love with Cape Town. You know, and we were getting a bit older and we were a bit, you know, fed up with the corporate stuff and all the politics and everything. Um, you know, we, we just agreed so quickly on the fact that we wanted to live here. In fact, we bought a holiday home when we were on holiday. <laughs> so we did back and forth for a bit. And then we thought, you know, well, our kids are grown up because we're kind of second marriage. So we both had grown up kids and, you know, there's nothing to stop us doing this. So we moved here. So I was in my early fifties then, and then, you know, I still wanted to work. So I just set up as a um, consultant, an HR and training consultant. Mm -hmm. And I did that for 10 years. And that brought me up to the kind of early sixties thing. So that's how that kind of stage of my life, but I was very much, you know, drinking more and more. And I had this vision in my head that my retirement, because we, you know, we've got a lovely garden here. I thought I'm going to sit in that garden under the sun and I'm going to drink and read my books. Mm. <laughs> that's retirement. Yeah. So let's unpick that because we, that's what we were talking about before, weren't we? About this, this retirement piece being such a big thing for people. 
Um, and we, we were talking about, you know, and you've mentioned it before about the mummy wine culture. There's this sort of the, the youth drinking where it's binging is completely normal. Then you've got the mummy wine, you've got the mummy juice where it's completely normal. I'm doing big bubble quotes to try and dial down the stress and the caring load, chronic stress often for women with wine. But then we've definitely got this other piece around retirement. And I'm really interested to hear your views on what made it, what makes it hard to quit at that point and maybe what makes it easier if you like yeah I think for a lot of people that were heavy drinkers like me and if they drift into retirement uh, without a plan I think that's a huge kind of danger period because it's a bit like the pandemic you know how people didn't have to get up in the morning they could be on zoom in meetings with a glass of wine be- beside them if they wanted to there's such kind of freedom in retirement and it's it can be negative or positive and it can be a void you know a kind of empty feeling and that's when you know a lot of drinkers fill it with alcohol because they i mean i lived in france for a bit and i remember you know about 11 o'clock even my husband who's got absolutely no problem at all it would get to 11 and if we were at home he'd say oh it's time for an apero <laughs> yeah. and you know my eyes would light up whereas for him he just meant a tiny drink and then he'd go and do something else but it's so easy just to slip into that pattern and there was a lady in our community who was she joined because she wanted to get sober before she retired she's very clever you know she was only about 55 but she was retiring at that age and their plan her and her husband was to go around the world and as a heavy drinker she knew that you know she would waste that period because she would be drinking and hung over and she would miss half of the trips so very cleverly you know she got sober before she left on her world trip so there's i think people need a plan and i actually mm. think it's a brilliant time to get sober because there's so many health issues you know that you just have to google them you know health problems older people drinking and you know every organ in our body it it attacks and if you know if you are coming up to that kind of age I would say make that a project you know just quit drinking get that out of your life and then you'll you'll be able to reconnect with yourself and find a purpose that lights you up because it's that lack of purpose when you leave your job you know most of us loved our jobs and when we leave, it's, oh, well, what what now? Because obviously getting up in the morning, going and doing your, your thing, that's your purpose and you enjoy your colleagues, et cetera. So there's a big void waiting there if, if people are drinking and they don't make plans. I feel like, so I'm younger, but I'm going through menopause and I'm preparing for that sort of elderhood hmm. role. And yeah doing at the moment um, a course with Dr. Sharon Blackie, who's a mythologist and is very much about co-creating new stories around elderhood, new positive role models, because basically we we kind of haven't got any um, because we didn't live that long. So we didn't have that kind of huge wealth of positive you know, engaged role models and roles so much. So there's a, there's there's definitely a big kind of 
a big piece there. Like you said, there's a kind of a void. There's a, you know, when we first got sober, so on, you're thinking, how do I do this? Who is sober? It's mm. like that, isn't it? It's, it's, I, which is one of the reasons I think what you're doing is amazing because you are one of those people, one of those women who got sober later on and just mm. then did it, you know, and got the meaning, got the purpose. So you know it, you've walked the walk, which is, it, it's so important. Um, yeah, I think there's so much reframing to be done about aging as well. You know, I mean, yeah. I'm 71 now. And when I look back on my life, you know, the really it, it got richer and more beautiful, you know, the older I got, you know, just because you can't have children or you don't look, you know, like you used to look at 30 doesn't mean your life's over, you know, and I think there's so much work to be done to encourage young women that, you know, they've got an amazing life ahead of them. And it's just about, again, you know, it's, it's the, the... It is, isn't it? It's the let's create a new story. Let's create a shift. Let's question yeah. the cultural, the normative, yeah. you know, cultural narratives around so much, you know, around so when much. I was when I was 40, if, mm. if I'd had to imagine myself at 70, I would have imagined this little lady, you know, clutching a zimmer frame and not leaving the house, you know, which was madness because 70 year olds aren't like that anymore. And there's that piece that you said as well, isn't there, about the lack of structure, stroke, extended holiday. You know how we mm. have to reframe and cope with holidays, high days and holidays. Yes. There's that piece as well, I think, with with how we a view retirement so we can tie ourselves up in not going well I've worked all my life so of course I'm just going to I deserve it and the way that we've been convinced for example that a glass of wine at the end of a busy day at work is self-care when yeah. in fact it's the complete opposite so if you take that forward to retirement then your self-care is to drink all day long yeah and what do you think um, you know, with the, this, I had, I've had someone say to me, you know, well, I'm, I'm too, you know, I've done all the damage now. I'm too old. What's the point? What would your response be to that? I'd say that our bodies and our brains are amazing, you know, and you just get out of their way and stop pouring poison down your neck every, uh, <laughs> every evening and things will change. Healing will, will happen. Every morning I wake up. Well, first of all, you know, I always thought I was one of these, what do they say, the owls that, you know, mm. stay up late and get up late. But these days I go to bed early and I usually wake up about five, you know, and I'm absolutely full of beans and I can't wait to get started on, on the day. And, you know, I never imagined that being older would be like that. Mm. And when I was in my 50s, I felt tired all the time. You know, I was working a lot. And I remember feeling oh, tired. And I thought, well, it must be age. And I think a lot of people are in that place. They think, oh, I'm tired, you know, but I'm 50 and I've got kids and I've got this and that to worry about. But take the alcohol away, you know, and you get your energy back. You get your creativity back. Getting off that kind of groundhog, that groundhog oh, yes, day feeling. Yes opening up once I mean obviously I think the tough bit is that you have to do that bit of early habit change white knuckling yeah. like you have you know it is uncomfortable so I thought I wonder if there's that piece as we get very entrenched in our ways that that ability to change 
do we lose that ability to change? What are your thoughts on that? Well, the way that we frame it to people to motivate them to do it, because, you know, it does take work. We say uh, you don't actually have a problem. You've got an opportunity here. You've got an opportunity to completely open up and change your life. You've got an opportunity to change the trajectory of your future. And it does take six months of work. I think, you know, the hundreds of people that we've we've helped, we kind of observe them, if that's the right word. And the average is about six months, you know, of work and focus and being with a community. And then everything's different. You know, admittedly, you have to start learning, you have to reconfigure your life a bit, shake up your routines and learn how to navigate the, you know, I'll call drenched society that we all live in. But then you've got a different future ahead of you. I do think even sort of talking to other mum, mum friends, I'll say mummy wine friends, I haven't got any of those anymore, but mom, <laughs> just mum friends yeah. who still drink, they have noticed a shift and they talk about it differently. So I have yeah, real well, hope for that area, I do. but I did yeah. pitch an, I, an article to an old editor of mine, I won't mention any names, but she is the, now the magazine editor of a very, very famous, I won't mention any names, magazine for the, you know, elderhood post-retirement. Hmm. And we just wouldn't touch it. Too many, no. too many wine drinkers, probably no. too much sponsorship from the wine industry and of the cruisers. Course. Yeah, I had exactly the same experience here. I was at some party and um, this lady came up to me. And she said, oh, I know about your Tribe Sober thing. It's great. I'd love to write your story. And I said, well, go ahead. And she said, I can't because uh, my magazine, which was also a famous glossy, it's a global thing, she said 70% of our uh, revenue, ad revenue is, you know, cocktails and pretty wine bottles. So, you know, what we, we're manipulated, as you well know, you know, what we see in the press. I mean, all this red wine is good for you, plus all our confirmation bias issues. You know, we just, oh, red wine is good for you. <laughs> Hooray. Yeah. And it gets so many clicks, that kind of headline. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so tell us a little bit before we go, tell us about Tribe Sober, tell us what you offer, how people find, you know, I know you mentioned you're in South Africa. Does that matter? Tell us all about no, it. No, of course not. No, we have an international <laughs> membership. I mean, we're quite small. We've got 400 members. And we used to think that we wanted to grow that, but it's actually so much work, you know, looking after our members. And we love the fact that we know most of them and we're giving personal service to people. And we couldn't do that if we had a thousand members. So, you know, we've decided we'll stay a few hundred and then we'll know that we're really helping these people. And the, the way that the membership came about was um, I was just running workshops for a couple of years. I ran one in London. I used to run them in Joburg. I ran one in Singapore, all places. And the people that did those workshops, well, they were very kind. You know, they'd given me lots of nice feedback. But they'd say, we want more. You know, we want a follow-up workshop or we want uh, more content or, you know, we need to stay connected. So I thought, hmm. And that's when I thought of a membership. So now, you know, when people go on a workshop, they join our membership as well. And that really helps. And we've made the workshop kind of part of our membership. 
So the membership works by, you know, the biggest piece is connecting them with other people because connection is the opposite to addiction, as uh, Johan Horis taught us all. <laughs> so they they join the community. But we, we also have a lot more. You know, the workshop is we give them lots of tools. The workshop is part of the membership. And um, we divide the membership into two sections, really. Because I believe that we, it is in two parts. I think we have to quit drinking. So that's the big habit change thing. And then we have to learn to actually thrive in our sobriety, you know, because there's so much more to recovery than just not drinking, you know, as, as you well know. So we've uh, structured our membership so that we offer people chances to try all sorts of things you know within their their membership subs so they get to try coaching and hypnotherapy and art therapy and meditation you know they they can sample all these things and the chances are that they'll find something they love and stick with that we gain so much more than we've yeah. lost yeah. And that's what people have to believe. And I think, you know, when they see so many people in a mm. chat room saying that, you know, they, if it's just me that says it, they say, well, mm. she would say that. But yeah. if it's all the other members chipping in, it, it really works. I think it's having a plan. It's a plan, a structure and the belief together. So it's not empty faith what you'll give, um, empty faith or empty hope. And the same with, with you know, other the, the, so, those sober forums. It's like actually you're offering a structure, you're offering a plan, you're offering a process, and you're giving inspiration. And that is really powerful. It's not just hope peddling with empty promises. And yeah. Talk when you're you're drinking. And it's what you're actually craving is some authentic, meaningful yeah. con content, contact, yeah. um, connection, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We'll always finish with a reason to love sober and a tip of the day. So tip of the day first, and then your reason to love sober. Tip of the day. Well, I guess we've already talked a lot about being connected. You know, I would say don't try and do this alone. That's probably my biggest tip. But also um, one that's very popular in our community is play the movie forward. You know, whether you're kind of craving a drink or whatever, just play the movie forward. Don't just react if you get a craving to drink. And I always use an example of myself the first time I did this play the movie forward. My husband was away. I was alone in the house and I was about four or five months sober. I was just heading for my depression. And I thought, oh, I could go and buy a bottle of wine, shop down the road, bring it back, drink it, get rid of the bottle. Nobody would know. And then I played the movie forward and I thought, hmm, what will really happen? I thought, well, the first sip will be sublime, first glass, very enjoyable. Then I'll drink it all. Then I'll go out and buy a second bottle. Then I'll fall into bed. I'll wake up at 3 a.m. <laughs> feeling so shit. And then the next morning I'll feel so disappointed and depressed. But what really did it for me is I had one of those trackers, you know, your days of sobriety. And I thought, oh, what will I do with my tracker? Will I put it back to day one or will I just, you know, brazen it out and then I'll know that it'll never be an authentic tracker. So in the end, I was so exhausted all this. I thought, oh, let's just have a cup of tea. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so that was my example of playing the movie forward. Yeah, and people forward. people do it a lot. Yeah. They realise, you know, it's, it's going to get me nowhere. Yeah. So what's your um, reason to love sober today? 
Um, I think the, there's so many, uh, Kate, but I think the main one is, um, you know, we talk about connection, the opposite of addiction, and I and the, instantly we think about community, we need other people. But when we're drinking, we lose connection with ourselves. You know, and I, I, I had I'd completely lost myself really in the later days of my drinking. And that's been such a joy for me to reconnect with myself and figure out who I am. You know, at the age of 71, you know, you haven't got another 50 years. So you have to think, what do I really want out of the, this next decade? You know, I want to be healthy. I want to be happy. I want to be useful and I want to help other people. So that's what I'm doing. Amazing. Thanks very much. So if you're immediately concerned about your drinking, just reach out, um, send up a flare. And as you can see, and just talking to Janet today, there are those communities out there. So many now. We're so lucky. So just find your fit, reach out, know that you're not alone, find your fit. And uh, we'll see you in a few weeks for, for more chat. Mm-hmm.